Welcome to Crime Scholars Podcast and Happy Halloween. Today, in lieu of recording an episode about true crime, I'm opting instead to read you one of my favorite short, scary stories that I've loved for many years. This story is written by Rose Wilder Lane. She's the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder, who you may recall from the Little House on the Prairie series, if you read those books as a child or watched the sometimes unintentionally hilarious 1970s TV show of the same name. Rose Wilder Lane was very different from her mother. She was also a prolific writer, but she had some very extreme political views. And although I don't agree with those views, again, this is a story that I've cherished since childhood. It was never published until posthumously in 1972 after she had died. And it was about her days as a young woman working in the uh, first years of the 1900s. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I have. And again, have yourself a happy and safe Halloween. This story is called Faces at the Window. I have never seen Mayfield, Kentucky. It happens that, so far as I know, I have met only three persons who came from that probably charming small city. They were unknown to each other. I met them at wildly separated times and places, and in combination, they gave me the strangest report of the supernatural that I have ever heard. It seems worth setting down. There must be persons living in Mayfield who know the facts or have investigated the reports. I can only tell what I heard. And this is not fiction. It happened exactly as I shall tell it. I cannot explain it. Whatever the explanation may be, here are the facts. In 1904, I was a young Western Union telegraph operator, working the night shift at the branch office in the Midland Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. The Midland Hotel has vanished now. It was then the pride of a newly opulent era of magnificence. I remember its lobby as a dazzle of white marble and red plush, under a glitter of crystal chandeliers pendant from a ceiling of gold. Revolving glass doors guarded it from the streets. When I first reached the city, after daring the railroad journey from Sedalia, and the Western Union manager told me to report to the Midland Hotel, these doors baffled me. My every attempt to enter the vast place ejected me, and I circled it in growing desperation, renewing my attack until by some accident, in utterly blind panic, I found myself inside the overpowering lobby. Thereafter, I never passed competently through that revolving door without feeling the superiority of my sophistication. I came through it every afternoon at six o'clock, breathless after running at top speed up the block-long hill from KC main office. For my boundless ambition, unsatisfied by an eight-hour day, had got me a main office job too. I was working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, earning $60 a month and writing on top of the world. I accepted formal transfer of MD branch office from Miss Hamilton, the day operator, who waited, gloved, and hatted, and left at once. Behind the marble counter, I peeled off my gloves, pulled out hat pins and removed my hat, fluffed up my front hair with firm hands on hips, pushed down my corsets, smoothed my skirt placket. Then I took from my purse a paper-wrapped bottle of alcohol, and with it signaled across the lobby to Gladys, the postal operator. 
Gladys was a thin and pale but lively blonde with freckles. Her hands were peculiar, having six fingers each and extremely long, flexible thumbs, and her life was even more oddly fascinating. I anticipated the evenings during which she told me bits of her experiences. It was Gladys who had walked nonchalantly up the lordly curve of wide marble stairs mounting from the lobby to the mezzanine, discovered the public dressing room, and led me to it. Western Union and Postal Telegraph Companies were competitors. I would not have dreamed of leaving my Western Union post if Gladys had stayed at hers beneath the rival postal sign. In faithful loyalty to our employers, we left both offices empty, and while the Midlands guest wandered about the lobby, carrying unsent telegrams and bellboys soothe them, Gladys and I whiled away the hours happily in the dressing room on the mezzanine. It was a place of incredible magnificence. The floor and the walls were made of sub-substance then unknown to us, apparently china, for it was smooth, hard, and white as a plate. All along one wall was a thick, astonishingly clear mirror, and beneath it a row of white china basins, into which water, either hot or cold, could be made to pour, simply by turning the, apparently silver, handles of faucets. At that time, I had once seen a porcelain bathtub, but never before such a place as this. Gladys brought an alcohol stove. It was a flat tin can, filled with some substance that did not burn, covered with a fine wire mesh. I brought the alcohol and matches. Each had a curling iron. We took out of our hair the rhinestone-studded shell hairpins and little combs and barrettes and the wire hairpins. We unbraided the braids and combed out our hair. We set the alcohol stove on the edge of a wash basin, poured alcohol into it, and lighted it safely. We heated the curling irons in the smoky flame, testing them with licked fingertips. When the irons barely sizzled, each deftly rolled up a long lock of hair on the hot iron and stood holding it tightly close to her scalp. Meanwhile, of course, we talked. In the white glare of light and the faint, oily odor of hot hair, Gladys told me the enthralling story of her life. She was next to the youngest of thirteen children, and all alone in the world. Where her twelve brothers and sisters were, she had no idea at all. She had not seen nor heard of any of them since she was eight years old, because then her mother died and her father just went away. They did not know what to do, and sort of scattered. I had the impression of a nestful of little quails, scattered and cowering in the grass without a mother. Gladys stayed with a neighbor for a while, but they made her work too hard, so she left there. She walked into Memphis, where a policeman took her to a police station, and some people wanted to put her in an orphan asylum, but she got away from them. She went to back doors asking for work, and she had worked a year for a nice woman who had three little children and gave her some clothes. But then there was yellow fever in Memphis, and so many people died that everyone left Memphis that could. That nice family left, and Gladys was scared of yellow fever, so she left Memphis too. When she was 14 years old, but she said she was 15, she was clerking in a bookstore in Colorado Springs. It was easy, clean work, and she liked it. $3 a week, and they let her read the magazines. There she met a girl named Amy, who came in to buy books. Amy was 14, and she was an only child. She was in Colorado for her health. She had consumption, and she was living in a hotel with her parents until she got well. Gladys and Amy became great friends. They were together all the time, and Amy's parents were pleased because Amy was so much happier. She was always laughing when she was with Gladys. They had such good times. Gladys was almost one of the family. 
Then Amy got well, and they were taking her back to Mayfield, Kentucky, so she and Gladys had to part. Gladys felt bad about it, but not as bad as Amy. Amy cried and cried. She said she'd die without Gladys. They couldn't get her to stop crying, and sure enough, she cried herself so sick that they had to call the doctor again. The doctor advised them not to take her away from Gladys. So her father and mother talked to Gladys and said she was all alone in the world, there was nothing to keep her in Colorado Springs, and if she would come with them, they would sort of adopt her as a sister to Amy, and she could live with them like one of the family as long as she wanted to, or for always if she wanted to. And she did want to. This was the most wonderful thing that ever happened to her in her whole life. I remember Gladys's face when she said that. She meant it. Nothing else so wonderful had happened to her in her life, and it had not happened. For here she was in the Midland Hotel in Kansas City, a postal branch office operator, earning $30 a month and living, as I knew, in a $2 a week hall bedroom in a rooming house. What happened? I wanted eagerly to know. Well, Gladys said, it was queer. It was very queer, and she did not understand it at all. And maybe I wouldn't believe it, but it was so. Cross her heart and hope to die, it was the honest truth. They went to Mayfield, Kentucky. They traveled in the sleeping cars. Gladys slept in a Pullman berth and ate in a dining car. Maybe they weren't exactly rich, not as rich as Rockefeller and people like that, but they did have a lot of money, and Gladys's keep was no burden to them. When they got to Mayfield, at first they had a hard time finding a place to live. Amy's father owned a business there, but they had sold their house when they went to Colorado for Amy's health, not knowing how long they would be gone. Now Mayfield was growing fast, the hotel was full, all the nice places were rented, and they had to buy or build a new house. That would take some time. So meanwhile, they rented what they could get, and it was an old house, not even painted, right on the bank of the river. They rented it by the month till they could get into their new home. It was a big house, bare and sort of echoing inside. They didn't really furnish it. Their furniture was in storage and they only took out a few things like beds and some chairs and lamps and a stove and table in the kitchen because they were only camping there till the new house was ready. The first thing that happened was in the middle of the first night, every one of them had the most frightful nightmare. They were all so scared that they got up and lighted lamps, and at midnight they were all together in the kitchen. They made some coffee and drank it, and stayed there till daylight. The next night exactly the same thing happened. They were all in the kitchen again, all scared by nightmares. In the daytime it seemed so silly to act that way for nothing but a bad dream, probably from something you'd eaten or maybe because you were sleeping in a strange place, and you were so tired you were sure you'd sleep tonight. They'd all be laughing at each other for yawning, and right after supper, as soon as Amy and Gladys did the supper dishes, they all went to bed and sound asleep. Then, in the middle of the night, it happened again. They'd wake up screaming and light lamps and all get together in the kitchen. The queer thing was, not one of them could remember what they'd dreamed. At first, Amy's father wouldn't let them talk about it, but now, when they did, they could not remember what they had dreamed that scared them so. Amy's mother said it probably came from drinking so much coffee, in the middle of the night too, so she made cocoa. They all agreed that they'd have a nice cup of cocoa and then go back to bed, but they didn't. They just sat there in the lamplight till morning. Every morning the whole thing seemed so silly and everything was all right all day, and then at night the same thing happened again. 
Gladys said she supposed you got used to almost anything in time, and after a couple of weeks they were sort of used to having those awful nightmares, and anyway she was too sleepy to care much, but then they saw the faces. They were not real faces, they couldn't be, but whether I believed it or not, she saw them. They all saw those faces. At least Amy said she did, her father and mother said they did, and Gladys knew she did. She would swear it on the Bible. When they went back in the kitchen in the night, with the lamp lighted and it was black night outside, they saw those faces looking in through the kitchen window. You know how sometimes you see your face reflected in a window pane? These faces were like that, but they were not reflections of anyone inside the kitchen. They were faces of old men and young men and women and boys and girls. Different faces, sometimes a crowd of them, and then only one. Amy's father said they were all worn out and imagining things. He said there was nobody outside that window. They all knew there was nobody there. There couldn't be, because the kitchen wall was at the very edge of the river bank. The bank went straight down to the river below, and outside that window there wasn't ground enough for anyone to stand on. Next day, Amy's father put a window shade on that window. He said that nothing was hurting them, they were only imagining things that weren't so, and he had bought another house. They would move into it six weeks later, when the owner had agreed to move out. Gladys had looked out of the upstairs window and made sure that nobody could possibly stand outside the kitchen window looking in. That afternoon, before sunset, Amy's mother pulled down the shade. Nothing happened that night but the nightmares. The shade at the window was down and stayed down till broad daylight. Gladys said she should have been able to stand it for six weeks. They pulled down the shade every day before sunset. She saw the faces only that one time and she never could remember a single one of those horrible dreams. But she always knew that the faces were outside that shade trying to look in, and she couldn't stand it. One day, she just left. She went to the depot and bought a ticket with almost all of her money and left on the next train, with a few things wrapped in a bundle. She did not take any of the things that Amy's folks had given her, and afterwards she wrote to them and tried to explain, but she never mailed the letters. What happened to Gladys after that doesn't belong to this account. I do not remember when or why she left the Postal's Midland Hotel branch office, and I have heard nothing of her since then. Her inexplicable experience in Mayfield, Kentucky, was only a chapter in the short but adventurous autobiography that she told me in vivid bits while we curled and combed our hair in the sophisticated luxury of the Midland's public dressing room on the mezzanine. I do not remember that we discussed it at all. I would certainly have forgotten it, but for subsequent events. In 1908, I was manager of the Western Union's office in Mount Vernon, Indiana. I was also telegraph operator, clerk cashier, janitoress, and stern, though frequently baffled chief of the staff, one messenger boy, age 13. Mine was a position of dignity, leisure, and affluence. I worked only 10 hours a day, only six days a week, and my salary was $50 a month. I lived well, dressed fashionably, and every payday gaily added $25 to my savings bank account. The memory lingers with me still of those huge, delicious five-cent sandwiches, buttered buns enfolding a major portion of a sizzling fried fish fresh caught from the Ohio. 
One day, a briskly important young man breezed, as he would have said, into the office, dashed off, as he would have said, exactly ten words on a telegraph blank, and swirled it around on the counter to me. It was a routine message from husband to wife, announcing his arrival and ending, meet me, as such messages always did. I was surprised to hear myself exclaiming the address aloud, Mayfield, Kentucky? Oh, you know Mayfield? The customer said. In some confusion, I said that I didn't. He guessed, then, that I'd been reading about the excitement there, in the newspapers. I hadn't. Then, as now, I was unperturbed in placid ignorance of the newspapers. Unquestionably, my first surmise had been correct. This customer was what I would have called a traveling man. In 1908, only a hayseed still said drummer. He pushed his hat back, lounged jauntily against the counter, and told me all about the excitement in Mayfield. There had been an old house there, he said, in the edge of town on the bank of the river. It was a ramshackle old place. Nobody had lived in it for years. There were stories that it was haunted, but nobody pays any attention to such notions anymore. Do they, kiddo? Well, here last week, the railroad was putting in a new sidetrack, and they had to widen the flats along the river where the railroad yards are. So they wrecked the old place and brought in steam shovels and dug into the bank underneath where it was, and what do you suppose they dug up? Bones, girly. Human bones. It's all in the newspapers. They got reporters there, taking pictures, from St. Louis and Chicago and everywhere. It's a big sensation. A big one. Yes, sirree, sir. Those steam shovels have brought to light any amount of skeletons. Skeletons of old men and women and middle-aged and young ones, children, they say even babies. They haven't sorted them all out yet, but there's dozens of skulls and skeletons, some say hundreds, buried all these years under that old house. And it turns out, the papers say, that that old place was an inn once, in the early days before Mayfield was built, when the early settlers were coming west. They say there was a good many such places along the trails that took in travelers and their families for the nights and then murdered them in their beds and buried their bodies for whatever goods they had with them. They had horses or oxen and wagons and their supplies, of course, and guns and clothes, and these innkeepers murdered them in cold blood for things like that. Whole families. And now those steam shovels are digging up their bones, though they've stopped them now. There's men there digging now with picks and shovels. It seems more respectful to the dead. But nobody even knows their names today. There's probably no way to trace them. Nobody will ever know who they were. Nothing but bones. Lying there all these years under that old house. It gives you something to think about, don't it? I said yes, it did. He said that it was a big excitement in Mayfield, the biggest sensation maybe that Mayfield ever had yet, and I certainly ought to read the papers. A big sensation like that, even in St. Louis and Chicago and probably New York by this time. I said I certainly ought to read about it. I said, this will be 25 cents, and he paid for the telegram and left. I didn't remember his name, and I did not read the papers. I thought of Gladys, but I had not thought of her for years and didn't know where she was. As everyone knows, a mention of the supernatural in any group of persons will produce strange anecdotes. Someone or several in the group will relate an absolutely trustworthy friend's inexplicable experience. 
The narrator does not believe in ghosts, of course. No one present does. But can you explain this actual occurrence? The Traveling Man's sequel to Gladys's tale was a coincidence that served me well in such anecdotal groups for many years. I thought the story ended, but it was not. In 1928, I completed the typical American circle by returning from Baghdad via Tirana to the farm from which I had set out. This farm is near Mansfield, Missouri, the gym city of the Ozarks, population 811. I like it. I like Mansfield and Mansfield people in the Ozarks, their sea-level blue skyline, their clear limestone streams, their early blossoming springtimes, their incredible massed expanses of summer's wildflowers, their winters brown with oak leaves, their fox chases and frolics and speeding motor cars filled with singers playing guitars. Mr. N. J. Craig was president of the Farmers and Merchants Bank in Mansfield. The Craigs and my family were old friends, and often I listened entranced to an evening full of Mr. Craig's stories and modestly tried to repay him with some of my own. So one day, when Mr. Craig telephoned to ask if he might bring an acquaintance out to tea, I was pleased, and I thought nothing of it, when, over the teacups, he asked me to tell the anecdote about the haunted house in Mayfield, Kentucky. I told it unusually well, I thought, for no one had ever listened more attentively or appreciatively than Mr. Craig's acquaintance. He was a quiet young man, intelligent, somewhat reserved, but observant and quick-witted, the perfect listener who doesn't miss or fumble the most subtle nuance. I finished the tale. There was a brief pause. Then he thanked me. It is an extraordinary story, he said. I think I have never heard a stranger one, and I am greatly obliged to you for telling it to me. I cannot explain it at all, because, you see, I was born and brought up in Mayfield, Kentucky. I have lived there all my life and live there now, and there is no river in or near Mayfield, Kentucky.'